0: What is going on, everyone? Welcome to the Taming the Financial Chaos podcast, where we embrace uncertainty, we embrace the chaos, because we are working to establish control. My name is Matt McCoy. I'm a financial advisor and a certified financial planning professional out of Greensboro, North Carolina. The name of my practice is Principles of Financial Planning. You can find us online at principles, with an L-E, of financialplanning.com. That's Principles with an L E of FinancialPlanning.com. Hello, everyone out there in ListenerLand. I hope you are doing well. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If it is not, well then welcome back. Or thanks for sticking around or showing back up or however you want to put that. But, anyways, we are certainly glad to have you along for the ride. Uh, regardless today, and before I jump into today's topic, let me mention a quick note about our last podcast, uh, that I failed to mention in that podcast, which was simply that, uh, we have a companion piece you might say, uh, to go with that podcast up on our blog. Um, it talks basically about AI in the same way, uh, as we did in in the podcast, but just approaches it from a little bit different perspective. So if you enjoyed that podcast or, you know, wanted to read more about it, uh, then that certainly is available to you as a resource. But as for today's topic, what what we're going to do today, we're going to get started on a multi-part series regarding ESG investing. Frankly, at this point, I don't know uh, how many parts we're going to have to to this. Uh, It's probably going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of, of three or four. Um, but when I chose this topic as a a subject for our podcast, I knew there were a couple things that I wanted to be sure to cover, but as I kind of read and and researched things, uh, I ended up stumbling across some sources that had some pretty interesting information, uh, that I felt like would help give a more complete perspective of ESG. So, you know, that being the case, I wanted to be sure to, to bring that to you. But the first thing we're going to cover starting today is just going to be the basics of ESG. And while most of you are probably familiar, at least with the term ESG, we're going to be sure to to define that uh, and then cover some of the key aspects of what uh, ESG investing is. From there, uh, we'll talk about basically the practical side of ESG, and we'll get into the discussion of the types of ESG investments that are out there, the efficacy of ESG, and then we'll also talk about some of the the key concepts that I would say underpin ESG. Now, before jumping into the discussion of ESG, I wanted to offer what some might consider a bit of a disclaimer uh, in getting started today, and that's just simply that I'm going to take the same approach to this topic as I would any other, and that means I'm going to place it on the microscope, and I want to be sure that we see it uh, for for all of its characteristics or attributes, uh, positive and negative, my objective is simply to to paint an accurate picture uh, of whatever it is I'm talking about, and I'm not going to treat this subject any differently than I would any others. A key point in all that is we're not going to venture into the political, especially those who are a little more familiar with ESG. It's probably obvious that it's been colored a bit by politics again, we're not going to get into that. And frankly, we don't have to, um, my objective, like I said, is get to the truth. And to do that, we just, we just need to deal with the cold, hard facts. And frankly, one of the things that i tried to do in sourcing information for these podcasts was to go to sources who are on, you might say the ESG side of the fence. So in other words, all things being considered, they are ESG advocates, and with that, hopefully you will find that the sources I've gathered will give interesting insight uh, into what ESG is and how it functions, let's say. But let me make a point that I think summarizes the point I'm, I'm really trying to make here. And to use the environmental aspect of ESG as an example, to the extent that someone might not be an advocate for ESG as it is currently constituted, that is not the same thing. As being an advocate for pollution, as an example. It's also not the same thing as being an opponent to the environment, so to speak. So, in other words, it is absolutely possible to criticize the way in which a goal is being pursued without criticizing the goal itself. And that's a very important distinction. So, just keep that in mind as we walk through this discussion that any criticism you hear is not aimed at the goal per se and that it is more a matter of the methodology or or the way the methodology is implemented. But without further ado, let's jump right in. So where I would start in kind of exploring the basics or explaining the basics of ESG would be with what does ESG stand for? Well, we've already referenced the environment essentially. So the E stands uh, for environmental, the S stands for social, and the G stands for governance. If I were to slap a definition on ESG investing. What I would say is that it's an investment strategy predicated upon two things. Number one, directing capital away from certain companies or even entire industries that don't meet quote certain ESG standards. And number two, it's also a matter of directing capital toward companies that do meet certain ESG standards. So when we reference ESG standards, what are we talking about? Well, we're basically talking about criteria that have been developed by various people, various firms, for each of those categories we mentioned. So, environmental, social, and governance. Environmental, I think, is pretty self-evident. That obviously covers uh, pollution, you know, of all kinds. But when we're talking about the social and the governance aspects of ESG, what exactly are we talking about there? Well, social may be self-explanatory as well. Just like we said with the environmental, social obviously means we're dealing with people. But I think there's a term that I've heard used more frequently uh, as of late that I think does a good job uh, of basically understanding who would be looped in or who, I guess, would would be looked at in terms of being impacted by a company uh, from a social perspective. And that term is the stakeholder. Uh conventionally, I think we're all familiar with a stakeholder as someone that quote-unquote has skin in the game. So with a company, probably the first people that, that come to mind are going to be people like investors, they're going to be employees, um, but also customers. So if those are some of the folks who are being considered under the social aspect uh, of a company evaluation or ESG, then we're talking about things like how the company treats its its people, its workforce. Uh, product liability, things of that nature. Now, I also mentioned investors as stakeholders. And one thing that would probably be pretty important to an investor would be transparency. And while we might be able to argue that that could fall under the social aspect, given you know that we're talking about stakeholders, typically I've seen it basically included under the governance aspect. And, and that makes sense too. You know, either you are governing, so to speak, a company with transparency or you're not. Uh, So in other words, either that's a characteristic of how you operate the business or it's not. But to basically explain what is meant by governance, I'll read you just a a quick passage from the Corporate Finance Institute's uh, website about corporate governance. And it says that corporate governance refers to how an organization is led and managed ESG analysts will work to better understand how leadership's incentives are aligned with stakeholder, there's that word again, expectations, how shareholder rights are viewed and honored, and what types of internal controls exist to promote transparency and accountability on the part of leadership. So if ESG investing is predicated upon the environmental, the social, and the governance aspects uh, of a business, what is the goal of ESG investing? Well, here's my way of breaking that down. So if you are categorizing companies based on ESG factors and those categorizations set the table for companies to be included or excluded from consideration for investment, then the goal must be to fund companies that meet certain ESG standards and divest from companies that don't. And that's essentially the the definition that I went over. But we shouldn't consider that to be the end of the story. One of my favorite principles is that the purpose of a system is what it does. So if you are directing capital away from certain companies and toward others, then you are raising the cost of capital by definition for the companies who are not receiving funds to the point that it might even become an existential threat for them. So we can absolutely say that the goal is to create a difficult funding environment for companies that are not of a certain ESG caliber. And you certainly find plenty of statements echoing this sentiment from ESG advocates. So for those who adopt an ESG strategy or for the, the managers who, who manage such a strategy, how does it determine which companies are acceptable from an ESG perspective for investment and which ones are not? Frankly, this is where things start to get a little interesting. The reason for that is because under a conventional investment model, an advisor or investment manager would evaluate a company based on research in the financial and economic data. The guiding principle, essentially, in evaluating a company from an investment perspective, again, under the conventional model, is the fiduciary standard. So in other words, would an investment in this particular company represent what's in the best interest of my clients? But part and parcel of that, or maybe even an implication of that, is that the evaluation of a company is kept in-house. So in other words, the investment managers, uh, advisors, you know, their staff, they actually do the hands-on evaluation of a company. And the type of evaluation they're conducting is predominantly, if not exclusively, of a quantitative nature. The reason the evaluation process they use is predominantly of a quantitative nature is because everything revolving around a business, at least in terms of its prospects for, for success or failure, Revolves around the fundamental data point of a transaction. So, in other words, here are some questions that someone who is evaluating a company might ask How many transactions does a company participate in? How much revenue is generated per transaction? Is the company on track to maintain the pace of transactions and the revenue that each generate? How can it grow the number of transactions and the amount of revenue generated by each? How can costs be reduced involved with securing supplies and the overhead associated with providing goods and or services? How can more capital be secured separate from the revenue that is generated from transactions? Is the economy or the specific sector of the the company at hand experiencing a positive cycle or a negative one? There are certainly additional questions that we can ask, but those questions cover some key areas of business operations. So we're talking about sales and distribution, marketing, purchasing, financing, and the general business or economic environment that we find ourselves in. If the transaction reigns supreme in a conventional investment model, then when it comes to evaluating a company, the most pertinent data and information to be considered lies in the form of the reports that a company issues, uh, including financial statements. And if that's where the information lies, then to evaluate a company, all someone has to do is get their hands on that information. And that's exactly what any investment manager worth his or her salt uh, should and, and would be trained to do. The most important aspect that underlies the importance of something being quantitative, like what we're talking about here, though, is that it means it's an objective process. In other words, you might be able to argue on the conclusions reached, but you cannot argue with the data that's involved. And if there are arguments to be had about the conclusions that are reached, then that might actually speak more to how future expectations are developed as opposed to the current state of a business that's being evaluated. But when it comes to ESG investing, it is the simple fact that it begins with the subjective, not the objective, that causes it to stand in contrast to the conventional approach to investing. But how do we know that ESG uh, is subjective? Well, consider this question. What would you say constitutes the perfect environment on our planet? And just in case you want to take the easy way out on that one, if your personal answer to that question includes phrases such as clean water, clean air, something along those lines, that ain't going to cut it. I need you to define what exactly those mean. And given that there are a multitude of elements that can potentially be found in air and water, you would need to actually define the acceptable levels uh, of those elements. So maybe parts per million or parts per billion. But what if we were to ask a hundred people to define what they think constitutes the the perfect environment? Do you think all hundred would give the same answer? Assuming we all agree that they wouldn't, that would seem to be evidence of the fact that there isn't an objective standard that universally informs the, the standards and criteria baked into ESG. And if we do not have objective standards, well, that means that we're left with only the subjective. But as far as I can tell, an interesting fact about ESG uh, evaluations is that they seem to be completely outsourced. Uh, in other words, these evaluations don't rely upon an advisor or an investment manager. And I think it's an important question to ask why that would be the case. What this brings to light is that the single point upon which all ESG standards seem to rest is the ESG score. And according to the ALVA group, quote, An organization's ESG score is a numerical measure of how it is perceived to be performing in a wide range of environmental, social, and governance topics. Now, let's hit pause real quick. Who is the ALVA group? Well, this is what I guess essentially amounts to their mission statement on their website. It says, we support our clients to make better decisions with stakeholder, there's that word again, intelligence. We analyze millions of alternative data, including media, regulator, investor, government, public, and NGO sources to help our clients better understand and connect with their stakeholders. We combine AI technology, hmm, with sector analysts to provide a fully integrated intelligent solution to public companies covering their ESG risk, reputation, and media profiles, now it doesn't appear at least from the Alva Group's website that they're actually involved in the production of an ESG score, uh, but they do offer a lot of commentary on what an ESG score is, and you know maybe some different ways to understand it, uh, what it uh, what it analyzes, and maybe even some ways to improve it. But if the Alva Group were to offer an ESG score, according to urbanfootprint.com, they would be one of over 140 firms in the U.S. alone uh, that currently offer some sort of score. I think it's probably safe to say that if there are over 140 different firms that are offering uh, an ESG score, chances are pretty good that all of the scores that are being offered are going to be backed by some sort of proprietary or unique methodology. And so what that means is all of these different firms have different approaches, over 140 of them, to arriving at an ESG score. If that wasn't the case, then it seems like we'd have to ask, well, why offer so many scores? But nevertheless, as Urban Footprint notes on his website, the discrepancies among vendor calculations make it difficult to compare one company's ESG score to another. Now let's hit the pause button again and let me explain who Urban Footprint is. Uh, again, tried to, to hone in on what their mission statement was from their website. And here's what it says. We deliver resilient decision intelligence that empowers those who build our world to design a more efficient, equitable, and resilient future. We believe that organizations equipped with the best data and latest tools make more sound decisions Uh, Accelerating climate change, deepening uh, social inequities, and the profound challenges to navigate the transition to net zero have all laid bare the inadequacy of current systems to provide decision makers with the clear and honest information they need to drive effective and equitable decision. Urban Footprint's mission is to close this gap. We serve energy utilities, financial institutions, uh, government agencies, and private corporations with comprehensive, granular, and context-rich data about the urban and natural landscape, paired with highly targeted insights that map and measure risk and opportunity to prioritize investments and resources where they're needed most. Now, let me back up just a second. I want to highlight something I I said earlier and and make sure, I guess, that it really, I guess, sinks in as much as I think it probably should. So, as I mentioned, the ESG evaluation approach is something that appears to be 100% outsourced, at least in terms of an investment manager or advisor conducting such an evaluation. So, what this means is that ESG is not the domain of an investment manager or an advisor. To look at this from the opposite perspective, what this would also seem to mean is that evaluating companies in a conventional sense, so you know, with a conventional investment strategy, well, that's not the domain of those who are offering the ESG scores either. Otherwise, why would we have two separate parties involved? And so if we have two or more parties involved and we have two or more standards that are being used to evaluate a company, Would that not be a potential recipe for conflict? Well, thanks to some relatively recent news, I think we can flesh out this potential for conflict a a little bit and uh, gain some insight from it as well. On November 22nd, 2022, CNBC published an article titled, Biden Administration Loosens Trump-Era Investing Rules Around Environment, Social, and Governance Funds for 401k Plans. Uh, Now I'm not going to bother reading the the article to you. Uh, Hopefully you don't expect me to do that, but I will read some key points uh, that I think basically summarize the article. So these are direct lines from the article itself. The Biden administration on Tuesday issued a final rule that makes it easier for employers to consider climate change and other so-called environment, social, and governance factors when picking investment funds for their 401k plans. The new Biden regulations scrap certain elements of the Trump-era rules that Labor Department officials said stymied employers from using ESG funds. For example, they required employers to choose investments based only on, quote, pecuniary, close quote, factors, a term that essentially disallowed employers from selecting funds with any sort of, quote, moral, close quote, component, Labor Department officials said. Employers have a legal duty to thoroughly assess funds' risk and return when picking 401k plan investments. For example, they can't subordinate the financial interests of workers in favor of a cause like climate change. However, The new ESG rules clarify that businesses can, quote, include the economic effects of climate change and other considerations, close quotes, when making investment choices. Something that Lisa Gomez, Assistant Secretary of Labor for the Employee Benefits Security Administration, called, quote, common sense, close quote. Employers also don't violate their legal duty, by taking workers' ESG interests into account when crafting a lineup of 401k investments according to the new rule that may lead to more engagement among workers and therefore more retirement security now several things jumped out at me as i read those lines that i just read to you first some of them seem to be aimed at attempting to assuage any concerns that anyone might have that there would be conflicts between, say, a conventional or a fiduciary approach uh, to investing and the ESG approach. But if there are concerns, and especially if you feel like you have to placate or assuage those concerns, well, does that not mean that there is the potential for conflict? In other words, if there was absolutely no chance for conflict, is there a need to say anything? Something else that jumped out at me is that the article, or those folks uh, who are quoted in the article, seem to be painting conventional investment strategies in in a negative light. Uh, You know, the ones, as it references in the article, that are based exclusively upon, uh, quote, pecuniary factors. At minimum, though, it would seem accurate to say that how those investment strategies are characterized is that they are insufficient to meet everyone's needs. And if an alternative is needed to meet someone's needs, well, that kind of means by definition that what exists already is insufficient or even inferior. What's interesting about the pecuniary being subordinated, we might say, is that pecuniary means that we are dealing with an issue that is related to money. And as we already discussed, the fundamental data point of conventional investment evaluations is the transaction if the transaction is the fundamental data point then does that not mean that evaluating a company is fundamentally a matter of pecuniary factors now i will grant you that if the same company were to be evaluated via a conventional investment evaluation and on an esg basis it isn't automatic that a conflict will exist so in other words one sees the company as a good investment the other one doesn't and of course If two companies are in virtually identical financial shape, but one happened to align more with the client's beliefs, then I think we can safely say that the company that aligns with the client's beliefs would be the best recommendation. What I don't know that we can say, though, is that an investment in a company with an inferior risk return profile is the best recommendation, even if it aligns with the client's beliefs. In other words, would an investor be willing to accept a financially inferior investment simply because of factors related to ESG? It is this precise line of questioning that would seem to naturally follow from the comments attributed to Lisa Gomez in the article. As a refresher, what she said was that businesses can, quote, include the economic effects of climate change and other ESG considerations, close quote, when making investment choices. Now, given that the economic effects of anything, including climate change, should be part and parcel of the conventional evaluation of an investment, it's the second half of what she said that is particularly interesting here. To highlight what I mean, let's remove the part of her quote where she talks about the economic effects of climate change and just leave the ESG part. The revised statement would read like this. Businesses can, quote, include ESG considerations when making investment choices, close quote. Now, it would seem pretty obvious to me that if you speak about things separately, then you are speaking about separate things. And that would probably be a good way to summarize the ultimate point that I'm trying to make here in that conventional approaches to evaluating investments are a different thing as compared to ESG evaluations. Now, the last thing I will say here about this article might actually be the most interesting thing about what I found in this article And that was a link to another CNBC article, and uh, this other article is from March 4th, 2021, and the title of it reads, Wall Street Wants to End Trump-Era ESG Fund Rule for 401k Plans. A line from that article states, the rules from the Trump era don't, quote, explicitly call out or outright forbid ESG funds in 401k plans, close quotes. So the first question I would have is whether the Trump-era rules have been characterized accurately. In other words, it doesn't sound like there's actually anything standing in the way of ESG funds being included in 401k plans. And assuming that's the case, then what exactly is the problem here? What exactly is the problem for which loosening these rules is the solution? Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Taming the Financial Chaos podcast just a quick reminder that you can find more information and resources uh, about my practice online at principles with an L E of financial That's principles with an L E of financial I hope you will join us next time. And until then take care and stay healthy. Advisory services are offered through Lincoln Financial Securities Corporation, member SIPC. Insurance is offered through Lincoln affiliates and other companies. Lincoln Financial Securities and Principles of Financial Planning are separate entities. Lincoln Financial Securities and its representatives do not offer tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult their tax or legal professionals regarding their specific circumstances.